Hi, it's Arjun with a video this week that wanted to bring together some of the recent themes we've been writing about. First, is oil a sunset industry? We answered that no. B, uh, some of the growing pains we're seeing in new energies, especially amongst the publicly traded equities, and all sort of within that broader concept of the energy transition needs to transition. The theme of this video is profits over preaching. We need more profits, less preaching when it comes to this energy transition. So our overarching observation here is that the energy needs of the developing world is massive. We spent a lot of time talking about it. There's no question they're going to need all forms of energy. I think there's a motivation for many of these countries or regions to do as much of the new stuff as they can. But at the end of the day, they're going to have rising demand for crude oil, rising demand for natural gas, and probably rising demand for coal uh, to the extent they and as they move up the economic uh, ladder. Our biggest focus, both obviously with the traditional space, but increasingly with the new energy space as well, is that it will be profitability that drives success in adding energy sources. That doesn't mean if it's a new area where there's questions on scaling and growth, that it might be sort of unprofitable today, but it's going to need to be profitable in the future. And I think what we're seeing now is people starting to differentiate between that which is showing signs of scaling successfully, and that where there's some pretty big warning signs on, is this really going to be profitable without subsidy? And we know this has been a huge issue for the traditional space, the lack of profitability last decade, but they're starting to show signs of turning the corner. And there's a much longer history of this sector having 10 to 15 years of good, 10 to 15 years of bad. I think with the new energy space, they're starting to get sorted through. Ultimately, it is going to be profitability, the potential for profitability that drives successful growth in any energy source, uh, whether it's old stuff or new stuff. We do warn people, be wary when government is kind of the sole or the overwhelming driver through heavy-handed policies, through subsidies, through picking winners, and so forth. There clearly is a role for government to provide rules and regulations, to provide incentives. And if there is an objective to have lower carbon emissions at some point in time and to meet other environmental objectives, clean air, clean water, biodiversity, you are going to need an element of government. Where we would warn people is, is the growth in this subsector entirely due to subsidies? Is there any prospect to have profitable growth absent the, subs the subsidies? And I think that's where you're starting to see some areas called into question. We Again, general warning, be wary when government's driving the growth. Uh, we, we could use less of that. So we wanted to address three questions today. These are all questions that have come from some of you in the reader community, some of the Veriden partners and, and companies we work with. And the first is, if you're talking about the inevitability of continued oil growth in particular, when do people start worrying about peak oil supply? <laughs> That's something we've historically had to worry about You know, every 20 years or so. People think demand is going away, so they're not investing on the supply side. Do we need to start worrying about that? That'll be question one. Question two is, what can we infer from what has been pretty good outperformance of traditional energy as represented by the XLE versus the uh, new energy names as represented by, say, the ICLN index, there's an NEX, there's a TAN index, there's a number of different uh, uh, ETFs or indices out there. You're starting to see some pretty noticeable outperformance for traditional energy. And what does that mean? What can we infer from that? And then lastly, we got this at a dinner we were at uh, north of the border. Uh, the Veriden team was there. When you guys talk about new energies, are you simply being polite? And it was a group of uh, executives, mostly in the traditional oil and gas space. 
And I'd say, no, we're not being polite. We're going to need all this stuff. And I'll, I'll spend a, a few minutes at the end going through that. So let me talk about this question of, do we have to start worrying about peak oil supply at some point here? And th these are the demand numbers. I've shown this a few times, so I'll go through it quickly. There's so much question, you know, even last week in the FT, there was an op-ed from the IEA talking about peak demand being imminent, and we just don't see it. Um, we don't think you can put some magical year, round number or otherwise, where you can declare oil demand is definitively going to peak. Could it level out at times? Could it struggle if there's recession? That That's always been a period of weakness. We have a, a moment in time now where China, the US, and Europe are all facing economic uncertainty. There's no doubt in that kind of environment a demand could be more lackluster, could even flatline for a little bit. But when you look at the needs of the other 7 billion people on Earth, which we've now disaggregated into groups of 1.4 billion people, what we're calling the 1.4 billion people club, that's China, uh, 1.4 billion people, India, 1.4, the rest of Southeast Asia, which is currently just below 1.4 at 1.3, and then Africa in aggregate 54 countries, 1.4 billion people. They are collectively using about three barrels per capita. And within that, India and Africa are barely over one barrel per capita, yet rich countries, the lucky 1 billion, we're at 13 collectively, the US, Canada, a few other places at 20, Europe's at 10. There is so much scope as these other regions move up the economic curve, which they will. You know, they may not next year, they may not the next decade, could be 30, 50, 100 years from now. But those energy needs of those other 7 billion people, they are indeed massive, they're going to move up the economic curve. It is the inextricable march towards progress. And they're going to be using a whole bunch of all forms of energy. The new stuff better scale, because I'm not sure if you added up all these stacked bars on the right for these 1.4 billion club members. I'm not sure we can have that level of actual implied oil demand. This is just oil demand. Um, we're going to need the new stuff to scale. But the idea that it's going to scale and the old stuff's going to decline. I mean, look at the just, just look at the negative numbers in the in the lucky one billion club. If you were to have some aggressive electrification scenario, you're talking a 10, maybe 15 million barrel a day hit to rich country oil demand versus, you know, 10, 20, 30, 60, over 100 years, this could be 100 million barrels a day of um, total addressable market of demand growth. Again, I'm not sure we're going to actually have that kind of demand growth, but it, it just, those needs swamp what you're seeing amongst the, the rich countries. It's it's about the rest of the world. It's really not about us. I'm an American. It's not about us uh, anymore. And so this is something I've spent a lot of time on. The question I'm starting to get is this one of, when do we have to start worrying about supply? Again, we're in this period where China, US, Europe, a little bit of a lackluster economic situation. You've been able to meet uh, demand growth in the last year or so with growth from a bunch of different places, including some other non-OPEC countries. But this is work I used to contribute to at Goldman Sachs. Uh, the current team, led by Michele Delavigna, continues to contribute to. And we've shown this before. I'll go through it quickly. But this is an oil cost curve. And you can see from its flattest point in 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, when that curve is shifting from right to left, it means you have fewer projects. It means the cost curve is steepening. And the question is, when does this come home to bite? And it's it's not bitten yet. And the truth, as we'll say, uh, is going to be at the long end of the forward curve. That's when we'll know we are having a supply crunch. So this graph is spot WTI, the white line, 
versus 60-month forward long-dated oil is the purplish line. And you can see that the purplish line has been generally between $50 and $65 a barrel since 2015, whereas spot oil, you know, it obviously went negative briefly during COVID. It's been as high as 120 after Russia, Ukraine. And I think today it's currently just around $90 a barrel. I'm, I'm recording this probably about a, a week before this gets published. The point being is despite all that volatility at the front end, you've not seen back end move that much yet. The market still believes right now, either due to this economic uncertainty, again, in these three major oil producing regions, or, you know, is going to slow growth a bit and therefore, that slower rate of growth can be met with the projects that are out there, some continued shale growth, some Canada, Guyana's ramping, and maybe some OPEC growth as well. Again, when you see those cost curves steepen, um, and when you see how so many people believe that oil demand is going to flatten out, even if it does for a little bit of time, again, to me, there's just an inevitability to how much oil is needed by these developing countries, how much energy is needed, of which oil will be a portion of it. We are going to have a supply crunch at some point in time here. Our, our call has been super vol, not super cycle. We've not shown that you can have all prices go up and have economic growth accelerate into it. That's what happened in the last super cycle. I'll go through that in a second. We've not seen that happen yet. And that probably is the signpost for um, when when that next super cycle is actually upon us. And I think, again, I think you'll see it in back-end oil moving up. And as a quick reminder, we showed this, um, we showed this maybe a, a month or two ago. It is really the forward curves on the right graph from 2004 to 2007, the kind of initial move up in what we used to call the super spike era. And we show the inventories on the left here to show that so many people remained obsessed about our inventories building or drawing. You can see it at the front of the curve. We were backwardated when inventories were drawing. We had some contangos, uh, you know, when inventories were building. The real action was at the long end of the curve. And why did it rally? It rallied because people could see oil prices were going up. The current spot price was going up, driven by the back end oil. And it was driven by China joining the WTO, BRICS emerging, and those countries moving up that economic ladder where they didn't care what the price of oil was. They were growing rapidly enough that they needed oil to fuel their economic growth. And the market recognized, hey, where's the supply going to come from? OPEC spare capacity is generally overstated. We were trying deep water, Arctic, all sorts of different things. It turned out to be shale, which didn't start till 2012. And of course, this set of graphs stops in 07. And by the time we got to 2008 and, and the 2010 to 14 period, that long end of the curve was right around $100 a barrel. It was back-end oil that drove that last super cycle. And I think that's what we'd be looking forward to believe that we are uh, a new super cycle is upon us. Again, we have stuck with super vol, not super cycle, still our basic call uh, in the context of this framework. The second area I want to talk about, the second question is, what does it mean that traditional energy is now starting to outperform the clean energy names? Uh, and this is a graph going back to 2010. I showed it in last week's note. Light blue line is the S&P 500. They're the winner. <laughs> the broad stock market has crushed all of energy over a long period of time. I think energy goes through these long cycles. I'm a believer that energy's weighting in the S&P is on track to double here during this cycle. And you can see the white line is the XLE. And it obviously had really struggled uh, from mid-2014, especially to the COVID lows. And now it is showing some real new signs of life and it's showing some signs of closing its gap with the S&P 500. Whereas clean energy 
after peaking in early 2021, and I'm going to highlight it here. Just remember in the, off the top of your head this 2021 peak. Uh, this is for the iClean index, the NEX uh, index, and then the TAN ETF, which is a solar ETF. Um, they all peaked in early 2021, and we've now got a period where traditional energy outperformance is really becoming noticeable. And I think the question is, do you need to bother with the clean, new energy names? Um, you know, what, what is this just the public companies? How do we think about this? I think the other big question is, I think this is affirmation that it makes a lot of sense for the big oil companies to take it slow when it comes to new energies. We're going to need their oil and gas expertise and demand. The world is a better place when you have American, Canadian, and frankly, Western European oil companies that are large, profitable, important in developing traditional oil and gas. But I also think there's a sign of sort of a little bit of a growing pains. Maybe that's the right word for new energies. And I think the caution, especially shown by US companies, it's been the right approach. It's gotten a lot of critique, especially from those most passionate about climate, whether it's from the IEA, whether it's from academics, whether it's from ESG people, activists, obviously. And I think the go slow approach has been the right, the right approach that the traditional energy companies have taken towards new energy. I want to show a graph that my colleagues at Goldman, excuse me, my former colleagues at Goldman Sachs, this is from Peter Oppenheimer, uh, European portfolio strategist, David Costin, the US strategist, both friends uh, have shown. And this is a graph of the tech sector and profitable versus unprofitable tech. And look at where unprofitable tech peaked. It's early 2021. Same with those clean energy names that we saw in the prior graph. And you've now seen unprofitable tech significantly underperform profitable tech. And so I think this isn't just an energy phenomenon. This is across the stock market. Shock of all shocks, the market likes profitable companies. That should be obvious. <laughs> I think that's always been true. But you go through these periods like we did coming out of COVID, where interest rates were low, growth was all the rage. And people had a perception or an expectation that, well, in some distant future, maybe these guys will be profitable. And as it's become apparent that some of these unprofitable sectors in technology uh, may not someday become profitable, we're seeing that in new energies as well. And I think this is a, a market-wide phenomenon. It's not just particular to the energy sector. And so I'm gonna, I, I don't mean to pick on Orsted, but it is a you know an offshore, predominantly offshore wind name that has come under significant pressure. And of course, its graph looks, this is a graph of its market capitalization in US dollars. It looks a lot like that previous chart of the tech sector where big boom is people had a lot of hopes for um, growth and profits in, in offshore. And as there's been some questions about cost inflation and can you pass through the cost inflation and all these kind of normal concerns that all companies have in fairness, but they're having right now, uh, you've just seen its market cap implode. And I'm not an Orsted analyst. This is not in any way uh, a recommendation for or against this name. It's more the observation that you're going through these same kind of growing pains and the idea that you can have profitless growth. Um, it is an absurdity. You can always say today we're unprofitable and future is going to have better promise but you darn well better deliver on it. And when there's clear evidence that it's not coming true, uh, this is the result. And I think, again, for those big oil companies that have gone slow, um, thank goodness the ones that have gone slow went slow, or they'd be facing write-offs, as I, I think you're going to see with, with some of these names. So to bring it together, profits over preaching with the idea that even if you're passionate about, even if you're especially passionate that we got to get rid of emissions and um, you're, you're, you're a 
climate crisis kind of person, all that kind of stuff, to really get new energy to work, it's going to have to be profitable. You can't make it up. It's got, it, it has to scale. And what we do know is everyone on earth both needs, wants, and deserves any form of energy. Um, you'd like it to be lower carbon. You'd like it to be lower cost. You'd like it to be geopolitically superior. There's a lot of things you'd like. It's got to be there in the first place. And to be there, it's got to be profitable. And so th- I've shown this so many times. This is the S&P weighting of the energy stocks, mostly traditional names in the S&P 500 versus their profits. And for everyone who says, hey, that traditional business is going away. It's a sunset industry. I'd say, well, I think they just went through a big profit downturn. They are now at the start of what I think will be a decade-long profit upturn. It's going to be volatile. Uh, so people were concerned this was a near-term peak. You've had a pullback. We're probably on track to tick back up here. And again, our expectation is that some element of this gap is going to close in favor of the S&P weighting increasing for additional energy. But the bigger point is it is profits. It's profitability that matters. This is the sign of a successful or unsuccessful business, in this case, traditional energy, and it applies to the new stuff as well. So the last area I want to talk about is the Verdon team was at this dinner, and we were talking about our outlook and so forth. And I think I was going through some of the stuff about lots of demand potential in the developing countries. But hey, in addition to oil and gas, they are going to need and want some of the new stuff. And someone stopped and said, wait a minute, hey, you're amongst friends here. We're all traditional oil and gas executives or investors in that space. You don't have to pretend to this crowd to like clean energy. You don't have to be polite. Just say it. You don't like the new stuff. You only like the old stuff. And I said, no, that is absolutely not true. Um, We think we're going to need all forms of energy. And quite frankly, there are some exciting business models. They may not be in all the publicly traded companies, um, but they're in some other areas. It it is a broad, a, a big and broad space. It is worth evaluating. And I think there's going to be a motivation amongst many of these developing areas to do the new stuff, not purely, and in fact, perhaps lastly for climate reasons, but primarily for geopolitical reasons. Every country would like to have domestic resources. And whatever you think about solar and wind and their intermittency or their energy density or whatever the things you want to pick on, once you have it up and running, it's a domestic resource with zero variable cost, by the way. Um, so a lot of capex up front that can be a challenge, but once it's up and running, it's, it's essentially for free, subject to some maintenance capex and so forth. And so it's going to be very appealing to countries that are not long crude oil to do the new stuff. So we're not simply being polite. And our example here is China. Uh, and so I, I think I can put my cursor here. This was when they joined the WTO in two thousand one, two thousand two, and their oil demand per capita absolutely tripled. Uh, from 5 to 15 million barrels a day. As a result of that, you see on the right graph here, their net liquids imports has grown massively. China's going from being essentially balanced to being a massive oil importer. No one's going to want to repeat that. China's not going to want to continue down this path. I've said their push towards EVs is a recognition. They would rather have domestic coal-fired EVs over OPEC plus or US shale-fired ICE vehicles. And I think it's going to be true of India. It's going to be true of the rest of Southeast Asia. The African countries are different. They are actually pretty long oil and natural gas, and in some cases coal. So it's a more complex calculation, and uh, you know, in that in those areas. But certainly for large portions of the world that are not oil and gas rich or, or even coal rich, um, the, it's why they're going to want to do the new stuff. 
They're going to want to figure out what scales and they will care about their environment and they will care about carbon emissions eventually. But for now, I call it a geopolitical issue as much as anything. The other reason to care about new energies is you can create trillion dollar businesses that may be few and far between, but this is Tesla. I get it's a controversial stock, but you cannot deny that it has gone to about one third last time I checked of the luxury vehicle market in places like the US. That's a that's an incredible success over a decade. The market cap went up in a few stair steps, um, a big bump here, another big bump as the Model 3 finally started getting developed. And they, you know, they're they're not quite a trillion dollar market cap, but from you know, and this is on a logarithmic scale, by the way, this is the kind of success that is possible with uh with with newer energies. It may be few and far between, but there's a lot of appeal in trying to figure out who is going to hit the next home run because the energy needs are so massive. If you can find that technology or that energy source or the mixture of the two that is going to scale without meaningful subsidies. And again, I'm going to leave the controversy of Tesla aside, including some of their subsidies, and just say that that is the kind of success that is why people want to invest in some of these new areas. And it's why we invest in these new areas as, as a firm. And so when we talk about new energies, I think we have to remind ourselves it's not just solar and wind. That is part of it. It is a whole host of different energy sources and technologies. It's kind of like for those that can remember the internet bubble burst, there used to be an internet analyst at all these firms, uh, and they covered a whole swath of companies. The internet today, it's a joke to just say there's an internet sector. Every company has some strategy about being online. It's incumbent upon the traditional companies to be part of it. I'm talking about things like retailing or what have you. Um, there are companies involved with infrastructure, with software. I mean, it's just a really wide and diverse space. And that's going to be true of new energies. We probably need to stop lumping all of new energies together. It's too much of a mouthful to name every last subsector. But I think there's just a lot of diversity there. There's a swath of different business models, exposures, capital intensity, geographies, subsidy dependence. Uh, they can be public or privately traded, excuse me, publicly traded or privately owned. Pros and cons to all this stuff. It's not one thing. I think our job as analysts or investors or management teams is to try and figure out what is going to successfully scale, ideally with as small or no subsidies as possible, at least eventually. And that's the that's going to be the key. And at Veritin as a firm, we spend a lot of time evaluating all forms of, of new energies. Yes, we have a generally optimistic view of the outlook for traditional oil and gas. There's no question about that. Um, but no one should confuse our pragmatism about the pace of energy transition and what is required for pessimism. Okay, at least not in the context of the desire to do this stuff. I think it's there. And as a firm, as an individual, we spend a lot of time on this. We are focused on energy. And again, we'd like to see energy get out of the culture war. I do not believe things like green versus brown, clean versus dirty. These are not actual energy attributes. Things like cost of supply, um, carbon intensity, some of the environmental attributes, um, profitability, size of resource location, all these kind of things are the attributes of energy. And that to me is what we should be focused on. We're focused on energy. We're not just focused on old energy. We're not just focused on new energy. We are focused on helping meet the world's energy needs. So I'd like to end this video on a personal note. And some of you will remember, hopefully you can see this in the picture, that last year we took home the trophy 
in the uh, B flight of our club's club championship. And for those of you unfamiliar with uh, country club golf, there's usually a, a championship flight. Uh, these are the best golfers in the club, but certainly at our club, it's probably true in a lot of places. It's often, frankly, the kids either in college, just out of college. There's even a, usually a high schooler or two that competes. It's for the young guys, the best golfers and the young guys. Um, there's then the A flight. These are usually very good golfers who didn't qualify for the championship flight. Let's just call it the consolation flight, the A flight for the best golfers in the club. Then you have the B flight, the flight that I won last year, very proud to have won it. This is a flight just for the men. There are no high school, high school kids in the, in the B flight. There's no high schoolers in the B flight. It is for those generally in their forties and fifties. Uh, anywhere from a 6-7 handicap at the low end to maybe 11-12, sometimes 13 at the high end. I'm currently 8.5. I've been anywhere from 8 to 11 both this year and, and over the last few years. To me, this is the coveted flight. It's the B flight. I'm very proud to have won it last year. I did not get the job done this year. So I'll have a fuller update uh, in an upcoming post, but I am on track to hit the objective of 60 to 65 rounds. I'm at, I think I'm at 58 right now and I've got a couple lined up. I'm actually shooting this video before heading to the United Kingdom, including to, to visit St. Andrews again. So I think I will hit the 60 mark in St. Andrews uh, this coming week. It, it'll be, uh, you know, uh, by the time you see this video, I'll be there. Um, but the practice time was way down. Um, the just the putting, some of the short game, et cetera, you have to practice that religiously. And we fell short. I, I, I won my quarterfinals match, but lost in the semifinals yesterday. It was a winnable match, but at the end of the day, I didn't win. Um, and then there's no one to blame but but myself. And I think as we look towards this season's going to wrap up here in the U.S. Northeast here in the next month or so, I think we're going to have to really figure out how to incorporate better practice time uh, going forward. I will say, and I'm going to Bear with me here one second, is when we were in Canada, we did contribute to the five-pin bowling championship at an offsite we attended. So very nice to get this trophy, five-pin bowling. If you're unfamiliar with it, there are five pins. It's remarkable how even if you hit the middle pin, you can still somehow only get down one pin. And I will say it was a team effort. Um, I got the 100 points that the other three of us got. And there was one guy who was on fire and is the reason we got that trophy. But, yeah, you know, I'm proud to have contributed to the five-pin bowling championship, but I'm going to have to get back on track for the B-flight for next year. And we'll give a, a fuller update on the golf season in coming weeks. Thank you. Mm -hmm.